Kirana and welcome everybody. My name is Eddie Rakanui and this is Big Life Mindset, a podcast where you can learn how to be uncomfortable, grow and to love life more. I've coached winners of the Westpac Bank Innovation Awards. I've created online courses to build your confidence at work. I've helped people with career and relationship changes and I regularly put myself into uncomfortable situations so that everybody can benefit from the results. Today, we're going to get the inside oil on how it's not too dissimilar managing adults and children. And more importantly, we're going to hear from a guest who is going to tell us why he's managed to overcome situations where so many others have given up. Now, this is going to be really useful if you've either battled against the system and you've just banged your head against the wall wondering why it doesn't work in the way that you need it to, or you're a parent and you've lost your shit at your kids at some stage. All right, let's get into it, eh? It is my absolute pleasure to have on our next guest, uh, Roman Prokopchuk, and I do hope I've pronounced his name uh, correctly. Uh, Roman has a, a very interesting background, uh, and I'm so glad that he's you know, made some time to be on the show because he is a, he is a busy man. Um, so he's a first-generation immigrant from Ukraine. He arrived in the U.S. with six other family members into a two-bedroom apartment. He's also interned with the Secret Service and held a top-secret government clearance, which is not something you hear of every day. Um, at one stage, he was forced to become a self-taught digital marketer, and as a result of the 08 recession, he fell in love with it. He's got all sorts of experience across digital, lead, uh, digital teams, senior leadership roles, 600 campaigns, many industries. I mean, he's been there and done that in that regard. But the thing that I really wanted to talk with Roman about was that he is also a foster parent and has had 29 kids in his home since June 2018. Also, he became a foster parent by going through six miscarriages with his wife in three years, two of which happened on Christmas Day. With with death, loss, and hardships, Roman pushes through no matter what. Roman, thank you for joining me today, brother. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it as well. Awesome, man. Awesome. So just kind of quickly casting um, our eye back across some of your history. Uh, so you've obviously come from the Ukraine. You're, you and your family moved over? Yeah, we came in 1990. Uh, Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union. Uh, we had a sponsor here. We went through Vienna, Austria, Rome, Italy, and uh, and then here to the U.S. That was kind of like when is uh the immigration became a little lenient like the berlin wall fell and um that was kind of like the exodus path to uh, the u.s technically we came as uh religious uh refugees we we went to church in ukraine even though under communism you know you, you can't necessarily practice your religion like the state is who you serve per se so my family got a lot of um i guess privileges and things they've earned uh taken away um you know persecuted stuff like that so in 1990 when i was uh five in march we came here uh with my mom my dad my grandparents my aunt and my brother and as you mentioned to a uh, two-bedroom apartment mm. and so where is here uh new jersey it's funny because i was supposed to end up in california san mateo california but i ended up on the east coast yeah. so a lot of the time i think about like the dynamics of growing up like west coast versus east coast but i mean it seemed to work out 
Sounds like you landed in the right place anyway, mate. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the Secret Service stuff. I mean, what you can share, of course. Yeah, so I was a criminal justice major. Um, I wanted to kind of go that path, uh, mainly like uh, a federal um, law enforcement, things like um, different forensics, crime scene investigation interest in me. Mm-hmm. And um, I also was uh, was about to go in the Marine Corps also um, as an officer from college, but a health issue kind of prevented that. But basically, I had a six-month background check. Uh, you do things like, um, you know, your family and close friends get interviewed to make sure you're not in like any like militias or, you know, uh, terrorist organizations or all kinds of other stuff. And um, yeah, basically after that, I, I gained that clearance and interned with the Secret Service for a few months on the counterfeit currency squad. A lot of people think that the Secret Service just does like protective duty, but they have a dual duty in terms of um, investigating uh you know currency crimes as well counterfeit um different money laundering stuff like that so basically i was in charge which is funny as an intern screening the mail every day for for bombs and uh any other materials like through like an x-ray machine it's, it's funny that they got the interns to do that and then basically processing the uh counterfeit currency that came in into that field office as well and um, I got to do like well, fun things in my eyes. It was Bush's last year before Obama became president. Mm-hmm. So I went on like protective duties for Bush's daughters and we went to the range. They took the interns to the range. So we got to uh, shoot like six hours and uh, MP5s, different other, um, you know, firearms that the Secret Service uses as well. That sounds like a bit of a boy's dream. <laughs> yeah. Like your early 20s is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, something I didn't really touch too much on was uh, you've also got a podcast, the Digital Savage Experience podcast. Yeah, I started that five years ago. And like, I think everything in life that you start, that's like positive. I kind of wish you started it sooner. So if Mm -hmm. I had the chance, I would have started it um, several years prior. But things like, you know, the technology, the ins and outs kind of discouraged me up until then. And I just kind of jumped into it. So it started as a solo show. Now it's a um, an interview-based format where I kind of like try to dissect what makes people tick, you know, what made them who they are now, regardless of the good, the bad that they went through, both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that that's when on five years, I co-hosted another show, you know, a year ago for like 15 episodes. So I've been in a podcast space for like five or six years at this point. Awesome. And did you find what kind of growth did you see come out of yourself? Like, how did you evolve as the show evolved? Yeah, I think I would have stopped if it was a solo format, honestly, because there's only so many things you can talk about into a mic, I think, without having somebody talk back in it, like, you know, keeping your interest. So I think, I mean, I at least try to take like one thing out of every conversation and apply it and uh, kind of look at things from different perspectives. So really kind of networking meeting new people gaining new perspectives finding people to collaborate with so kind of opening my eyes to really people around the world because a lot of the people you know are from most continents that i've spoken to at this point uh all over the uh the world and people that i normally wouldn't have had conversation with i get to talk about and kind of pick their brain i had someone that was one of the founding members of the Medellin drug cartel and how they basically like found God and turned their life around and left that life. 
So I mean, in, in, in your everyday life, you don't necessarily will run into a person like that. Maybe you will, but just, you know, meeting cool people and, and talking about their life experiences and what they learn from them. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I think when you put yourself in those situations to meet people that you wouldn't ordinarily meet, some of the stories you hear are just absolutely wild. Yeah, and I think everyone has a story. It's just a lot of people are afraid to share them. Um, you know, some of the things like, you know, talking about going through miscarriages from the male perspective, I don't expect everybody to talk about that, but I saw there was a void. So like when I went through my first uh, miscarriage, there was no resources and nobody talking about it in terms of kind of like, you know, connecting and getting some kind of support. So I figured, you know, why not start sharing because I know other people are going through it. So I feel like, you know, if you have something to share like that, and if you're comfortable to do so, you really should uh, take the opportunity to do it. Mm. I uh, kind of slightly off topic, but related as well. I recently did a, a kind of a exercise where I asked people to say something positive about themselves. And, you know, I was really struck by how difficult people find it to say something positive about themselves, especially in a public forum. Uh, I wonder how much of that is connected with, you know, what you've just described, where people just kind of hold on to the stuff, you know, keep it as close to their chest as they can, partly for fear of being judged for when they do come out and say something. Yeah, prob uh, probably. And I think it's just kind of also gaining a sense of self-awareness as you um, kind of mature and, and gain life experiences. I mean, if you ask me, I'm just like, I guess, hungry at all times, mm -hmm. you know, behind closed doors. I try to recharge sometimes uh, not as motivated as I want to be sometimes, you know, sometimes somewhat emotional, like in my own space based on like stuff I've experienced, deaths in the family. But, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, you kind of have to brush that off and get up and, you know, you have no other choice. You know, you're still breathing. You can change your situation and you have other people depending on you so you can't you have to be as i guess strong as possible mm. and i think that that's strong as possible now that's a great segue into a lot of the challenges that you've probably encountered as a foster parent do you want to share some of that where, where, why being a foster parent where did the where did that come from what was the catalyst for that yeah so like you mentioned we went through uh the six miscarriages um we basically kind of started a infertility journey. So we had an egg retrieval and then, you know, each time also did um, uh, embryo transfers basically. And, you know, those didn't make it out of the first trimester and ended up, my wife ended up miscarrying. But um, we saw that us being foster parents would possibly be a way to potentially start a family, but even if not that, you know, create a safe space and safe home for people to, to, you know, for kids to be in our home while they, um, you know, transition from the situations that they've experienced either saw or been through. Um, and depending in, you know, if it's short term or long term, just like a place where they can basically heal and kind of, we took the first step of going to an orientation. Then we thought, you know, let's do it. And, um, you know, it consists of like, class time where you formally kind of there's a book uh, like training like going through scenarios and kind of legality what are your rights in the state of new jersey where i am as a foster parent which aren't much honestly uh but um but yeah it took like 10 months you have to get licensed uh, your home has to get licensed they do a, a home study basically figuring out you know why are you doing this what are your motives uh, what do you hope to gain out of it uh, looking at your finances, uh, you know, previous 
criminal record, if one exists, things of that nature. And, um, you know, May 31st of 2018, we were licensed. And then the next day we had two boys uh, dropped off at our doorstep and basically like figure it out. And I think in the class period, like a lot of things, it's all like sunshine and unicorns, you know, we're all there for you. And then, you know, when they drop the kids off, nobody's picking up the phone and basically are like, you know, it's, it's on you, you figure it out. And, you know, we figured it out. Um, each case is different. Each child's needs are different. Um, you basically, obviously I haven't had biological kids, but it's getting a child that's, you know, several years raised by somebody else. Mm. Um, they've seen something or they've been through something traumatic and you have to learn because a lot of times you don't get a lot of facts. It's very vague. They don't sometimes even mention what the the kids came from. So things may trigger them like something simple. It's a lot of the stuff like they're, uh, you know, neglected and malnourished. So like there's like food hoarding issues. So they just like, you know, cram uh, large amounts of food and, uh, sometimes even like throw off because they don't know, like based on their situation, when their next meal would be. So kind of uh, reassuring them in that sense, uh, whatever type of abuse they're, they've experienced, like they can react differently to things. So it's really like dissecting as fast as possible and figuring out, uh, you know, what could possibly uh, trigger them and, and be detrimental to, you know, them kind of uh, their healing process and really just being there. Uh, and being a safe place for them um, for however long they are in your home. Mm. Have you ever had experiences where you've just thought, actually, this is beyond our capability? Like this this challenge that we're being presented with is just maybe a bit too far for what we were able to support? Uh, I don't think so, because I think humans um, only reach uh, a limited amount of their capability uh, with whatever they do. I know like, if it's something physical, like at 60 or 70%, your body's like, why don't you like calm down? You know what I mean? But like pushing through that threshold. And uh, it was one of those things where I, we had no other, you know, choices at that point. And, you know, I think anything in life, I try to kind of stick with it and figure it out and do it to my best abilities. And, you know, it's, it's great where you have a, a spouse or partner with that, you know, with, with you doing that because a lot of the stuff um you know outside people don't necessarily understand so um you know people may say like you know what you're doing is admirable or great but they don't understand like that we're dealing with all this you know crap with like a broken system uh caseworkers that only see the kids a lot of them as numbers you know being told doesn't matter what you say about me you're never going to get me fired stuff like that advocating for different therapy services and not getting them for the kids and just a whole list of other stuff so i think it's important like we found like groups of foster parents that met periodically you know every month every other month and uh really kind of like you have a place to to vent and then the other person really understands because they're going through exactly the same thing um so not even not like being a foster parent, if you've experienced something and you find somebody that experienced the same thing, there's like that kind of like, uh, I guess, connection and understanding, like a level of connection and understanding. So, you know, we found a, a group of people to to lean on and support system and our family and friends have been really positive in terms of being there for the kids and being warm and welcoming. So um, 
and at the end of the day like i, I guess step taking a step back and understanding like these kids are you know dealing with a lot of issues that most adults won't deal with they're seeing their lives and they're uh, handling it usually uh, relatively um uh in in a good manner so you know what you can do you know you can kind of i guess i don't know if the right word is suck it up and and kind of like persevere through it but you know with 29 kids we've had uh five kids under the age of four and we managed to do it and i think it's like uh before like five years before i started uh being a foster parent if you asked me uh do you ever think you'll you know foster children i'd probably say no and then when i had you know when we had our first placement if you asked that you know in four years would you have fostered 29 kids no so it's like you don't know what you're capable of in that you know moment and you do you think you can have five kids under the age of four no and some somehow you just keep making it work and it's like that there's no other option Mm, yeah nice it sounds like you've got a really strong partnership with your wife through all of this as well yeah i mean i I wouldn't be able to do it on my own um it requires a lot of the a lot of time because there's a lot of visits to facilitate um places to take the kids there's people that stop uh stop by on a monthly basis for checks like they uh state assigned nurses caseworkers resource workers law guardians and kind of like everyone in between um especially uh during covid we had four kids so each of those kids everything moved to zoom all the calls everything and the caseworkers didn't facilitate it and basically mandated that the foster parents do that so my wife had to facilitate between like i would say 12 to 20 hours a week of zoom calls um, and facilitate uh, all these calls with the biological parents and guardians and oftentimes uh when when parents have mental illness or they're just like belligerent and are not in a good place the caseworkers shield us from that so we, we're not exposed and don't necessarily meet them if you know they're going to be violent or combative or stuff like that but you know we were kind of thrown into it and a lot of the parents had mental illness so like the conversations weren't very productive and you know my wife had to facilitate it and you know if somebody got belligerent or just just went off you know she would try to you know diffuse the situation and if it wasn't diffused she would just have to hang up and you know if the caseworker asked you know what happened like you know what do you mean what happened it wasn't a productive call and i'm not going to expose the child to that and um yeah so uh if if i didn't have somebody with me doing this i would not have you know the time or or anything to do it especially with um you know working podcasting um having family with health issues people passing and everything in between like life throws at you mm. i think any any parent with uh, multiple kids at some stage they're going to think man if i could just sort this one kid out the 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 rest of the boat will go smoothly right what are some things that you find like when you've got a settled household and then you've got an incoming child that is just it kind of throws everything out of sync like how do you manage that usually it's fairly like streamlined honestly um you know thank god but um sometimes because we we basically say because we have kids usually from uh, age two to four so we say um you know are they fine with younger kids and if there's no history of like abuse that 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 child has you know hit another child or 
did something to another child because we we won't expose the children in our home with somebody else like that but <clears throat> sometimes you know only one time we had to move move a child but uh he basically the caseworker didn't disclose like any pre-existing conditions or anything like that so there's something like called oppositional defiance disorder that you know he has a hard time with authority and he's like very violent to like his peers so he basically was placed with us with his brother during covid with two other children one of which had special needs um and he would bully the special needs kid uh he would tell him to say like inappropriate stuff he would punch him uh when nobody was looking and you know unfortunately like we can't have some like a situation like that in the home so he was moved um to a place where like he had one-on-one attention and i think his thing is <clears throat> he needed one-on-one attention and uh not you know three other kids in the home mm. so you know he wasn't a, a bad kid per se but he just needed a different uh situation for him to thrive and for him to you know kind of i guess get grounded so there's situations like that where you know a child is placed in a home with let's say multiple kids but based on what they've experienced they really need one-on-one attention and they have to be moved but uh it all depends on the child but that's the only really only time we've um we've had someone that had um you know i guess problems with uh you know the other kids in our home and you know we didn't want to um move him we kind of didn't want to give up on him but we gave it several months and when his behavior wasn't changing and it was kind of endangering the rest of the kids in the home, you know, we made the choice to, you know, move him to another foster home. Mm, and I imagine that must be quite, um, uh, have another layer of difficulty given you mentioned he had a sibling that was with you at the time. Yeah, he had a, he had a sibling, um, a sibling, I, sibling took it well. We had <clears throat> another child from a different family that was exact age of that younger sibling of, of the child that had to get moved. Mm-hmm. So he kind of connected more with the, the, you know, the other child, the similar age. So it wasn't really, uh, at least that I didn't see him. Maybe he didn't um, express it as much, but he seemed somewhat okay with uh, what happened. And we explained to him what happened mm. and he got placed in a, a good situation. And, you know, the other, you know, foster parents, came over uh, with the older child for the younger child's birthday. We had like a pool party. We went over there several times. So he had communication and he had visits with his, um, with his mom where both where both of them would, um, you know, would come and see each other as well. Mm. Uh, recently in New Zealand, there was quite a lot of spotlight put on to Oranga um, Tamariki, which is essentially the government department that's tasked with um, child youth and, um, welfare, I think it's called. I can't remember what the, the full title was, but essentially uh, they were removing children from homes. And it's obviously in a very, very emotive subject. There's you know a lot of tension. There's a lot of, um, I guess, dynamics that people aren't familiar with. But I think what was potentially coming out was just the, that kind of 2% of the story of child is taken away from mother. You know, and then a lot of the, like I said, the emotions that kind of get caught up in that. When you see that happening, how far down a, down the road does that have to happen before you know before a child is actually picked up and then placed on in with you guys? Like a few hours later, like yeah. kids show up with like a trash bag of clothes and stuff. Unfortunately, 
some kids show up with like you know black and blue eyes and you oh, know, bloody noses and things <clears throat> they actually like the the formal thing i mean it depends if it's either uh like somebody reported something and the child wasn't taken and there's a caseworker that monitors the situation and goes and kind of like you know checks up on them and if things aren't uh improving or they see something that's concerning they'll get a uh, like judge's order and then come with like a police officer and remove the child or sometimes like there'll be a there's like an abuse hotline here you can call and they do like a random visit and they check and if like what they say uh what was the anonymous um complaint aligns they'll take take the child right there and then usually depending what day time of uh hour they need to do a physical just to you know check like whatever happened to them um, if anything happened to them like uh to make sure they're okay and then as they know that they're removing them there's a list of uh you know foster foster homes and like their uh occupancy or how many kids they can have or you know some people just want younger kids some people want older kids mm. some people have specific specifications that they're willing to take so you know we have two children currently but our house is licensed uh well we sold our home so we're in you know a rental now but it's still technically can be licensed for about like four or five kids so there's some situations where they'll 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 call or even we get something that that's called like respite calls basically other foster parents if they have a medical emergency or they have to go out of state um, or somewhere on vacation but they can't bring the child because uh their biological parents won't allow it and you know a judge may not grant uh, an order to do so or something otherwise where they basically in that situation they'll place the child with another foster family so it's temporary so you know that can be a day a week two weeks so we've had uh, a few placements like that so that's kind of like i guess the three uh, scenarios that we've dealt with mm. and before anybody gets any ideas about um you know being a foster parent just comes with oodles of money and become a millionaire off it you actually have to pay quite a lot out of pocket don't you like this is actually a there's a, there's a significant cost there yeah i mean uh, in uh, new jersey in the u.s i mean state to state is different but you ha you get a stipend for you know food clothes and really activities but i mean with the state of cost globally of things and if you really want to provide a i guess a rich experience for the child then you're paying out of pocket so like u.s i mean it's anywhere from i would say like 750 to maybe 850 dollars a month a child um depending if the child is older if there's special needs if they you know require special care it can be more so it's one of those things where uh you know some people abuse it you know there's situations where people get like seven or eight kids and and take all those funds and you know don't buy anything for the children and kind of pocket the money but it's just like it's not a significant amount of money or um or even like the direction my mind would think to do so uh, so like if you take the ch children like we have to disney world like disney world it's the crazy as anything it's like per person per day it's like a hundred bucks uh you know you take four four people for for three days it's like twelve hundred dollars just for the tickets and then the the lodging and the airfare so like that one trip is like you know three four thousand dollars which we've taken multiple kids to disney world we have a six flags which is like an amusement park similar that uh that is like 45 minutes away from us 
So we've done that for season passes. We have season passes to aquariums. We have season passes to kids museums. So like when you add up all these activities and, you know, different sports and, and things like that, it's, you're, you know, you're not profiting off of it. And that's what it shouldn't even be used for. It should be used for, um, you know, the needs of the child. Mm. Mm. Do you find that, or is there a sense of because a child might have come from quite a deprived background or troubled background when you take on the child, is, is there a sense of kind of wanting to correct some of that? Like, you know, you talked about these experiences, these enriching experiences that children can go through. I mean, you could quite conceivably just kind of give them a house and food and just have like a non-violent household, right? Is there a sense of actually, given where they've come from, we want to kind of show them that there's more to the world than the experiences that they've had yeah i mean we do that i mean they're they a lot of them just require also uh, a schedule because they don't know the next time they'll eat they don't know like usually sometimes they don't even have a bed to sleep in so having their own space having a schedule really being on the schedule knowing hey you're eating breakfast at I don't know, eight in the morning uh you know lunch at two and then dinner at six or seven and if they 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 you know align to that a lot of just like simple things are corrected i mean <clears throat> they, they know that there's consequences to things we you know we have stuff like because they're young like timeout actually works um you know relevant to time proportion to actually like what they did mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's not like keeping the kids in timeout for half of the day but uh <laughs> but but stuff like that so I mean, it's it's like what the kid, what what the children need. Uh, if they need like extra help or extra, we try to spend one on one time. Also, you know, a lot of kids are coming from like, you know, multiple um, child homes. We had a, a placement where like seven kids were removed. We didn't get the all of the seven because they went in different places. We had two of the younger kids, so making sure each child has kind of like one on one time like group time uh with like we do activities as a family and then you know maybe i'll take one of the kids and go see a movie just me and him or me and her or, you know go to like a kids museum for a few hours stuff like that so they get individual time and then they get group time with us and then obviously time as a family whatever we're doing a lot of children are coming from uh you know single parent uh homes majority of which don't have fathers um in their life so me just being around uh it's comforting and mm. kind of helps them as well um especially well i mean growing up my father was there but not there so um you know my parent my father was abusive so he was you know he hit my mom and stuff like that i remember that as a child and um he threw my mom down the stairs when she was pregnant with my brother and my brother was supposed to be stillborn but you know thank god that didn't happen he ended up actually graduating from Columbia University with a master's degree. So, nice. you know, he ended up being smart or, you know, maybe he just thinks he's smart. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it was one of those things where I told myself, like, growing up also, like, related to this, that uh, I would be kind of different. I don't know, maybe in my teens, like, I would just be there because half of the battle is actually being present, I think, um, in my opinion, and showing up to things because, I mean, from 29 kids, it's it's a good uh sample size in a short amount of time to mm. to figure out what you know makes kids tick and what really impacts them and you know what things they they really need to thrive and and grow nice man that that is a wealth of experience that you would have been able to collect um do you ever lose your ship 
Uh, yeah. I mean, behind closed doors, nobody's around. Um, because sometimes things are super fresh, and it's not frustration with the kids or anybody else. It's just uh getting upset with the system. So like the system is broken. Um, like I always try to advocate for like foster care reform. Um, the uh, system in New Jersey was under federal uh, overwatch for like 10 years because there was gross mismanagement and things slipping through the cracks, um, kids being put in situations that, you know, they shouldn't have been put in. So it's mainly like me advocating for the child. The child needs like therapeutic services and somebody just brushes me off. So I get pissed with, with that situation or somebody like, indirectly or directly like whatever their actions are bringing harm to a child in my home so yes i'm going to protect them so there are situations where like you know why are you talking in that tone to us because i mean i don't really care about the tone i'm talking to you care about the kid in my home so Mm -hmm. because you're being negligent and you're not doing what you're supposed to i'm not gonna like put a smile on my face and be fake like this is a situation like you either remedy it or you know i'm gonna have to escalate it and uh, one thing I learned uh, is have everything in writing because oftentimes people throw you under the bus when they don't do what they're supposed to. So there were situations like a situation where I said that one child ended up being moved from our home. And um, at, there was a big call about it, like a Zoom call. And my wife actually documented every text message, every email with the caseworker, told the caseworker this. The caseworker wasn't truthful about him having this condition and stuff like that. And then basically the caseworker supervisor on the call, like threw my wife under the bus, like maybe you can't handle this amount of, uh, you know, children or like maybe you can't parent or something like that, she said. So then my wife wrote an email and then she had every single thing documented. So she like referenced and, and screenshotted every email, every text message and wrote out like, like a thesis paper, basically like four pages and copied like 12 people and then those 12 people so at the day she sent that email uh i think like 80 people in various departments in the state saw it and then just things started happening Mm. you know people were just quiet and actually like doing things so like one of the biggest things from like a process standpoint is like always always document like never just talk something on the phone because you can be told something and then that could be like misconstrued or something different comes out of it. So when, you know, whenever there's communication, like a major communication, my wife will write an email, even if the caseworker says, you know, let's jump on a call. It's like, no, I need to, you know, write this via email or, you know, you can write this out in a text message where I can actually save and archive it. Nice. Nice. It's a shame that that's a step that you've got to do, but there's a lot of, like you say, people can often misconstrue misconstrue something and something said with good intent might be inaccurate or the way that person said it wasn't really meant to be the way that they said it or there's a whole lot of gray in there. Um, What are some ways that you and your wife kind of manage stress? Uh, It's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good question. I think, uh, Sometimes there's not enough time to be stressed out. When you get to the end of the day, there's only so many hours left that it's just like, all right, just like hang out, sit for a few hours, like talk, like watch a show or something, and then go to sleep. Um, you know, we we try to do like a date night or like a day once a month or something just to ourselves if we can get um my mother-in-law or somebody else to babysit so like having like alone time or like kid free time 
um just kind of like regrouping at times because mm. sometimes we're both stressed out at the same thing but then it just like it gets to you so sometimes you can take it out on your spouse and then that adds an extra layer from you to kind of have to dig out of and just like completely you know shoots the whole day and you you know it's not a a good thing so kind of figuring out like what each person is dealing with mm. and like if i can help with anything if you know she can help me um you know she she handles a lot in terms of kind of like getting the kids from point a to point b and and things of that nature um so i think it's just like spending one on one time together you know when we could we would um travel now we can't travel as long but um you know before kids you know we'd go to like iceland or like fly to paris or places like that just to kind of like uh you know you enjoy each other's company now it's uh you know limited but things are kind of obviously globally you're getting back to normal so an ability to do that um we have an rv we haven't used it yet so at some point maybe take it out um a bit but really kind of taking taking a time to uh just spend time with each other and the benefit of having kids usually between two to four years old, they go to bed early. So usually bedtime's <laughs> at like 7 30, 7, 7 30 PM. So we have at least, you know, a few hours, you know, to ourselves just to kind of, I guess, unwind. Yeah. Cause that's super important, right? You know, that, that period where you can just kind of regather, ground yourselves, like have that connection. You know, I, I would imagine, I mean, we've only got four kids and I know that there's definitely times where you just are so busy and you feel so stretched and pulled from pillar to post that that, that small period of time where you can just even just be sitting by your partner and you just, ah, you know, just to go through that phase together, that process together of kind of decompressing, it's incredibly powerful. And sometimes I think it just gets overlooked and then you roll on to the next day and then the next day and the next day. And before you know it, you've kind of, things are starting to escalate. Yeah. I mean, in the morning, I try to take time to myself. So like go for a walk for like 15, 20 minutes. I have one street down. I live between the um, uh, the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. They're two states. And basically the Delaware River separates us. So I have a river. Basically, I look out the window. So I walk, like sometimes take walks by it. Now it's it's been super cold here. Um, so sometimes where it's like below freezing, I'll walk just shorts and t-shirt. And I think it has like, I mean, it, I'm not recommending it for somebody, but a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, now for, you know, health and like just clarity is like cold and heat. So like sauna and like, you know, ice baths, ice, whatever. So I or like cryotherapy. So I feel like I'm getting that naturally. So if it's like super freezing below zero, I'll just walk with um you know shorts t-shirt a winter hat and like gloves for maybe i would say like 15 20 minutes and it just like puts me i guess in focus um so i guess i do that but like a good morning routine i think definitely helps as well mm, absolutely uh my wife and i we're getting into the um the cold water immersion therapy which is just a fancy name for ice baths right uh so we we're really getting into those and just finding the benefits even just the fact that we're doing this thing together has been really helpful um slowly change you mentioned something and I, I forgot to ask earlier is you were actually in a foster to adopt um 
program or, or whatever that terminology is. What is that? What does that actually look like? Yeah, so it's like licensed. Like you, 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 you figure out what your classification. Like, what do you want to do with it? So, like, if you're just a straight foster parent, um, you know, you have children, and you may not, or you may not be looking to adopt. Like, our kind of classification is foster to adopt. So basically, um, like, it's not flagged. It's like written on our file or license. So basically, if uh, parental rights are terminated of a child that's in your home uh, and, you know, they become the ward of the state and, um, you know, everything uh, works out in terms of like it being a good fit, you would be the first people that the state in my situation, the state of New Jersey would come to and see, you know, is this a good fit and are you willing to adopt a child? So um, we're in a process, hopefully in, in two months, we, you know, we move through the whole kind of adoption journey for a child we had, for now, two and a half years, really straight from the hospital. Um, his mother basically was, you know, on drugs. She walked into the hospital. She thought she had a stomach ache, and he was like basically hanging out of her. Um, he was born at four pounds. He was in the NICU for a week, uh, like on a breathing apparatus, and they had to flush the drugs out of his system. And they didn't think he would make it past that week. And then week two, he was. Um, he was there and, you know, luckily discharged. He was born at four pounds and uh, basically the mom's rights uh, were terminated a few months ago and he moved into the adoption unit. Um, also, he has five other siblings that have all been, the parental rights have been terminated and mom's only 28 years old. So, um, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. She's been like a, a lifelong uh, drug user and the 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 environment really defines where you end up too so when she was young and i've encountered this several times like it's this kind of vicious cycle when she was a child she was in foster care as well and um you know her parents also were in foster care so like the cycle of like abuse neglect uh, you know drug abuse alcoholism kind of carried over and this whole vicious kind of uh generational circle like you know her her dad is one of like founding members of like a notorious gang in the state her brother's on trial for murder in another state so it's just like a lot of situations like that like it's hard to find um a family member that is willing to take the child or children uh in my state uh everything's really political honestly so uh when they had a new governor he elected a new um, like head of the child welfare or child protective services department. And she moved to a strategy of guardianship. So pushing uh, foster kids more so and finding at any cost a family member or relative willing to take them over putting them into a foster home. Uh, I don't know how I necessarily agree with that strategy yet, but it kind of naturally happens also because while the children in, are in your home, they're doing investigative kind of um, things to find family members both in state and out of state that would qualify for you to, uh, you know, for them to to take them. I mean, oftentimes it's sad that the, the family members just want them for that, you know, eight, nine hundred bucks. They don't necessarily want them because they're related uh situations like that um so yeah a lot of them are, are being pushed to 
guardianship, even though that guardianship um, environment that they're being pushed to isn't the best versus what they would probably have in, I guess, a good foster home. Mm. Mm. How do you manage when you build um, a strong emotional bond with a child and then they have to be, I guess, for want of a better phrase, moved on into the next phase of their life? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm numb from uh, at this point. And I feel like you have to be some kind of like emotional masochist to be a a foster parent because you know what's coming. Like you develop an attachment, an emotional connection, you care for the child, and then the child may, you know, get reunified, they may leave, and, you know, uh, a whole lot of things can happen, especially uh, in the foster care system where a case can change overnight. I mean, there was uh, one, one of the cases we had a child that was nonverbal. He was already like two and a half, three, uh, when he was like, uh, two, he ended up going into a hospital. He had a fractured skull and all these other crazy, uh, injuries. And he was nonverbal because like his mom was prostituting and like he would, he, she would beat him and he would just like, she'd put him in a closet. He'd basically sit there quietly in the closet the whole time. So basically he found a family member to take him, but he was with us for like a month and a half, but they gave us a half hour notice. So my wife was at work. We couldn't like do anything. Nobody that he met from our family or friends could say bye. And it was just basically, she had to rush home pack all of his stuff up and somebody showed up in like 10 minutes, took them, took him. And that was that. And uh, really it's dependent on if a child is reunified or they're moved into another home or go to another relative. It's up to that person that now has him to have any communication with the foster, you know, parent parents that he was with. Um, You know, we try to be a resource after the fact, anything that somebody needs. Uh, My wife actually for our first placement, a foster mom basically got up and left to Chicago. That's, I mean, in the middle of the country, not told anybody months ago, she ended up in a bad situation, um, ended up in a, a shelter before my wife, basically, you know, we spent all this money. She flew out there because somebody drove out with her to begin with. My wife flew out there like two weeks ago, basically landed 7 a.m. She picked her up and then drove cross country and brought it back here. So there's situations like that, you know, she didn't have any food. The kids were hungry. So we went to the store and bought them like, you know, $200 worth of groceries for the month before like any kind of assistance kick in. So, you know, we're always there. And I think it's one of those things where you have 29 kids, you always worry about them, make sure, you know, they're getting the best or they're not in any kind of like dangerous situations. But if something arises and they need help, um, you know, we're always there to kind of just like, regardless of what it is regardless if we can provide it, um, you know, because we didn't necessarily have the money to just pay a last minute ticket and then drive cross country for her to do that and pay for hotel rooms and stuff. But, you know, since we care about the kids and don't want to see anything happen to them, we just do that out of, you know, the love that we have for them. Mm. So I did say, so the, your, your journey as a foster parent started in 2018. Is that right? Yep, May 31st, we were registered or licensed. The next day, June 1st, we had our first placement of two boys. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so that, that, to me, seems like a large number of kids in a quite a short period of time. I mean, that's like we're, we're talking about maybe four and a half years, right? Yeah, and it, it would actually be more, honestly, based on, but we've had kids that have returned 
um, certain kids that have come back for what's, you know, respite care. Um, we have, you know, two boys that are with their uh, grandparents, but when the grandparents need a break or whatever, so we stopped like going through, they stopped going through the, um, the division of child services. So they just call us directly. So at this point in the last like three years, we've spent like maybe 15 or 20 weekends with them. So there's situations like that, but um, you know, it's, it is a lot, but the, some kids are with us for a few days and some kids are with us for, you know, a year and a half, uh, two years. Um, A lot of the time coming into it, we know that it's going to be a short-term placement. Sometimes we had, unfortunately a situation uh, one of the during COVID, one of the four kids we had with us, like I mentioned, was special needs. So basically, the foster parent that uh, he was with basically said, "You know, I'm I'm going to the I'm having some kind of medical procedure or something like that, um, and he has to, you know, can't be in the home, so for ten days. But the the reason that they wanted him to go, really go to respite is because they didn't want to feel guilty to get rid of him." but they did want him out of the home. So basically after those 10 days, they basically said, Oh, it seems like a good fit at your home. I think you should stay there. And then it was on us. We're like, do we ship this child to another home or we stay with, you know, he stays with us. So it was really the first child we had that uh, had special needs. I mean, he was a great kid. He ended up going uh, back home and uh, we still kind of keep in contact with them. But for, you know, somebody that had his, his conditions, he was, you know, fairly intuitive and smart and funny. So um, but it was one of those things like, okay, he has special needs. Now, what do we do? And mm. it sucked that we were put in that kind of situation, but we kind of ran with it. And, um, you know, it turned out for the better. Nice. I'm glad that it did. I'm glad that it did. It, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who wanted to add value in some way. Maybe they don't want to go the whole hog and be a foster parent, but they want to just like, they can see themselves contributing. They want to contribute something positive to, to the experience of a child that's going through foster care or foster parents. What's something that practical that somebody can do? Uh, one kind of figure out like who's a foster parent or a foster home in your community or the area you live in and uh, see if you can be a resource, um, you know, come over shoot hoops kick a ball around with the kid or i always say like a formal mentorship so like here they have like big brothers big sisters programs we had a child with us a few weeks he was 14 um it's it's sad that basically had a bunch of other siblings his his family adopted those siblings but they didn't want him which probably feels like crap for a kid that all your brothers and sisters were taken by you know uh aunts uncles and so on and so forth and he was supposed to go with her with his dad and a week before he was supposed to get permanently you know reunified with him the dad basically said i don't want him so now he's um you know it's a crappy situation but while he was with us um for two weeks one time for two weeks and then we figured out that he basically, there's another thing we weren't expecting to take a teenager, but we figured figured out right before Christmas, uh, the people he was with had to go away, so they couldn't find anything with uh, like uh, for him. Yeah, put in a group home, like a group kid home, and it's usually like bad kids get put in there. You know what I mean? 
he was not like a criminal he was not anything and uh we found out from the caseworker or the adoption worker like they he's like uh not sleeping at night because he's like guarding his stuff like he's getting beat up at night by the other kids and stuff and he had like a like a learning delay as well so they were making fun of him and bullying him for that so i mean there's there's situations like that uh as well i mean if we can if i had 10 hours i can go through every child and what they really came came from but um but he had a mentor so like a big brother big sister whatever the um the organization nonprofit was from so that person picked him up one night for like two three hours they went bowling he kind of helped them uh with his homework he brought some like stuff to work on and you know they kind of just talk so if you have like a few spare hours a week you can really like provide mentorship especially when a lot of foster uh children uh are coming from situations where they I'm, i mean i'm speaking right now to the male perspective i mean women can as well because i mean it's beneficial but a lot of them do not have fathers or never knew you know who their father was so i feel like it's it's that much more impactful to be a male role model in that situation and could be kind of the uh the turning point in their lives because oftentimes a lot of people like that i've interviewed or i've heard speak um that thing that kept them going in the right direction was it, it didn't even have to be a mentor it was a teacher or a coach you know or somebody that was in their life briefly that showed you know compassion to them and showed them um you know what it was to you know to be a man if they didn't really have an example to to follow prior uh, it feels like it's such a small contribution in the scheme of things that could have such a deep, long-lasting impact on a child. Yeah, I mean, little little things really uh, uh, help. I mean, people overlook that or feel like, you know, they have to drop tens of thousands of dollars to to have their kids, like, all the best things. But, I mean, if you do that and you're not never around, um, it's it's still detrimental, like, you know, I had a, you know, a home, I had all kinds of stuff when I was growing up, but my dad was never around. So I don't remember having like the newest game system. I remember of him not being there. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's, you know, it's that much more impactful. Yeah, for sure. Now, it kind of interwoven with your foster parent journey has been the number of miscarriages that you and your wife have gone through. Um, and I, I don't know the odds of this, but two of them happening on Christmas Day. How has that how has that shaped your thinking and how's that influenced you? Yeah, so I mean that's one reason we kind of explored being foster parents because at that point we already spent like hundred thousand US dollars out of pocket on all the infertility treatments and stuff like that because a lot of the stuff insurance doesn't cover. So we looked into like straight adoption, but oftentimes that's like forty, fifty thousand dollars out of pocket, which we didn't have liquid funds after you know you know giving all this money to the process so like you know we started exploring um you know being foster parents um and we've already like when we started the infertility journey we've you know experienced a few miscarriages and a few of them were like coincided or the timeline overlapped of us already being foster parents and still obviously naturally trying and doing um you know embryo transfers and infertility treatments as well and then like you mentioned two of them happened on christmas days people were over our house so it was like 
at this point, like every Christmas, yeah, it's a joyous thing. But at the end of the day, you it's tied to, a, you know, a traumatic event, which, you know, stays in the back of your mind. But uh, the last uh, miscarriage was kind of like during COVID, which sucked from the perspective. Like, I mean, they all suck, but basically... I had to uh, go with my wife to like the uh, the infertility uh, place, clinic, you know, hospital, whatever you want to call it, and she had to go in herself and get like the the embryo or the fetus removed out of her, and I couldn't even be there because of COVID, so I had to sit in my car outside in the parking lot, and for most of the process, like if, for me personally, like from the male perspective, you feel somewhat helpless. So like you're grieving in your own way, but like you know you're wife partner as dealing with it twofold with like different hormonal changes to her body and just her body going through that process as well so that last one was like extra tough from that perspective but it was also um more comforting as well because we had the baby that we're hoping to adopt now so it was like you know it hurt but we had kids in our home so it was like you know we kind of got a you know, mourn and grieve in our own way, but like we couldn't just like stop life. Um, when my grandfather passed away like, three years ago, he was kind of my main, main male role model. Like the grieving process was different. Like I took it hard because it was the first person I lost um, close to me. And basically, like after a few weeks, and I saw like it wouldn't be fair to him for me to give up and just, you know, stop everything in order to you know, to do whatever, it would make sense for me to to do my best and kind of take care of the kids and do everything else, follow my my goals and dreams in order to honor his memory. So it was one of those things where like you remember it and each one hurts just as much as the other one to the point where you kind of, in a way for me, just become, become numb and start asking questions like, you know, why would God, you know, grant this to people that actually want to start a family want to have kids you know or loving um you know provide for them um things like that and they just keep happening and i mean also they're there so eventually it's like like with everything in life i guess like that initial event is like a wound and then that grieving process it's like you heal it but that scar is still there mm -hmm. so like technically you have from that life experience six scars that will always be there and like I, I'll always think back about it, but you just like you know you learn to live with it, I guess. Mm. Have you reached the stage where you said actually that's that's probably not going to be where um, you know where a child comes from? Have you kind of had some closure on that, or is there where are you? I mean, we're still naturally trying and stuff like that, and we may do another cycle. We don't know, um, but I mean, the likelihood of us adopting before that happens is, you know a lot greater because mm. i mean the adoption is moving into kind of like the later steps and hopefully by march you know this march march 2023 we get to um you know adopt our our son so wow so it's that close so you've gone through pretty much by the time you get to that stage through the process it sounds like you've well and truly broken the back of it yeah i mean we've had like i said we've had him for two and a half years right like straight from when he was two weeks old and um it was just a process where it was dragged out like the facts are like a little different so last time anybody saw him was like he was born the day after me which is funny i was born august 18th he was born august 19th and then 
in October, end of October, was the last time anyone saw him on a visit. And then from that point, he's had no visits. You know, his mom just disappeared. And there was a potential father that, you know, they petitioned him to uh, do like 10 paternity tests. He wouldn't do it. So they got a sample apparently which is interesting um you can get it for like if you denied a, a paternity test you, you got someone pregnant and you refused it and they can't like get a hold of you if if your mom is alive and whatever because of that genetic tie they can get a sample from your mom and it's almost as accurate as getting it from you so they got it from that person's uh mom she actually went to visit thinking she was a grandma <clears throat> and um they found out that basically eliminated them. Like he wasn't the father. And then after that, the mom wasn't around. So there was nobody visiting. And then a few times people came out of the woodwork, like his grandfather wanted him, but his grandfather just got out of prison. His grandfather, like I said, was a founding member of a gang. He shot somebody in the face before he's, you know, gotten arrested with drugs and guns and all kinds of other, you know, crimes. So that wasn't going to be the case either. Mm. Is there a point where can the process be? Oh. I'm assuming the process could still be derailed. Bless you. Um, I'm assuming there's a, there's I'm always sorry. an opportunity. No, no stress um, for the process to be derailed. Once the once the child is formally, I guess, legally within, um, you know, you, you legally adopt the child, and it's kind of the final full stop is put on that. Is there any recourse for somebody to come out of the woodwork and say, well, actually, I am the father, and, and then kind of um, that gets relitigated, or what happens there? The father, uh, I mean, she she wouldn't even know who the father is. Like all the other, because there's so many mitigating uh, variables that it's not like one of those things where like there was like five family members and they're great and they ended up not taking him. It's like all these mitigating factors. So like all his siblings were, uh, all the parental rights were terminated for every child. They were all adopted out. Um, She hasn't done anything in two and a half years. Mm -hmm. She hasn't shown up. She didn't even, like she was so sad. She was so uh, under the influence where like the adoption worker came to her with a picture of him and she just like blankly stared at it. She didn't even recognize like who it was or like the fact that like she had that child out there. She never went to court. So, you know, like I said, parental rights were terminated a few months ago. Yes. There's things that can happen in the 11th hour. Like there's been uh, adoption side railed where, you know, they're about to get adopted and somebody from like a different state comes forward or somebody else and says, no, I don't want this. I'll take them. And they, they basically um, push priority. Like if you're a blood relative, like they, they supersede, you know, a foster parent. So, you know, in the 11th hour that could happen, you know, we've been praying about it, obviously that, you know, nobody's can't come out of the woodwork or anything like that. But Mm. once he's adopted, there's, pretty it's pretty strong that nobody can reverse that because there's so many negative like mitigating factors within that family that it wouldn't even make any sense Mm. and i mean at that point you can legally fight it because there's like you can prove that they're not necessarily fit to take him Mm. so yeah i've heard i've heard of people uh, last minute because nothing's guaranteed like 
when a child's in your home, um, when you think something is moving to, uh, to adoption, like that's actually what happened with their first placement. So a lot of the time, the division of child services will say stuff just to get a child placed because oftentimes there's not enough homes. There's not enough good homes. Like the system is obviously stressed with, you know, the volume of, of kids. I mean, there's, five or six hundred thousand kids in the u.s in the foster care system That's so basically true. they were yeah it's it's sad um and another interesting tidbit that there was a survey done of people incarcerated i believe like 70 to 75 percent uh identified as being in a foster care system at one point or another when they were being you know when they were growing up which is like crazy and another crazy correlation but um but basically we were told because they knew we we're foster to adopt kind of on our heartstrings, like, yeah, the mom's not getting them back. They're, you know, moving to adoption, which wasn't the case. And they knew wasn't the case. And that's like, they knew we would probably want to take them since we're brand new foster parents. And that's like our goal from, you know, from us being foster parents. So, you know, we ended up taking them and, you know, when you're a new foster parent and you start having kids in your home and you start dealing with, with the state and different employees and stuff like you start learning real quick kind of the ins and outs uh i feel like it's one of the it's like a scared straight approach um i mean here there's like a show scared straight so they bring kids into prison and like have them experience it because they're moving down that path but it's just like in the class format we sat there and it's like you know we're all there for you whenever you need something you can call on us and it's like two kids are dropped off the, the day after you're licensed and we're like looking for people and people are like figure it out and what do you do you figure it out so yeah that sounds like unfortunately quite a lot of them dysfunction within the system you know coupled with some of the other things you've talked about like how disjointed it is and the lack of integration and kind of during COVID here you guys sort it out i mean that's a lot to put on people who are you know, trying to do the best, trying to help out as much as they can, and then you kind of given this um, unhelpful hot potato to just catch and sort out on your own. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of situations like that. There's situations where we had caseworkers. There's good caseworkers, bad caseworkers. We had caseworkers told telling us, you know, no matter what you say about us, you're never going to get us fired. So obviously, with that mindset, you're not really there to, you know, benefit the kids. Um, we've had situation where. <laughs> because uh you know we don't like discriminate who we take so like based on the area we're in in the state i'm in and i'm in the state capital more like you know in, in a city area you know out of like the 29 kids about 24 were black so a lot of people don't like the fact that you know white parents are raising black kids both the uh parents and guardians that they were taken from and sometimes black caseworkers that kind of like give you a hard time about it and like kind of, you know, a, a racism vibe. So there's like different things um, even dealt with that on top of the stuff where people are like, you know, you just have like a, a white savior complex. And it's like, no, wouldn't it be worse if I said, hey, I don't want any black kids in my home? Like, you know what I mean? So it's like. Man, it's incredible to think that in amongst all of that, all the things you have to deal with, and that's another thing you have to add on top as well and, and kind of manage your way through that. It's incredible. There is almost a no-win situation there, like you say. It's like, well, what would it, what would you say if I said no black kids? You know, Oh, well, then they're, they're not eligible for other kids either because they're clearly racist. I mean, it's it's a tough tough position to be in. Um, where do you see yourself from here? So, so the adoption goes through and that's successful. 
do you think that's going to have an impact on on your view as a foster parent at all, or what do you think will happen after that? They we're still fostering, but oftentimes um, after a while, all the good homes, the people are just like fed up. Like I don't need this. I don't need to like go through this. I don't need to be treated like this. And they close their homes. Basically, you know, basically are done fostering. Um, uh, situations where like basically also. If a child is with you and they are reunified and then they're taken again and put back in the system, you theoretically should be the first to be notified and asked if they can come back and stay with you. Uh, the other boy we have with us since at this point, uh, two August, not this past August, the, the August before that, uh, I vouched basically, you know, express my opinion, like you shouldn't be going home. Like his his mom has mental illness that it's a major problem in the U.S. Main, mental illness as a whole not being addressed. So, I mean, there's a lot of homelessness and stuff with people with mental illness and everything in between not diagnosed properly. So basically, I'm like, he's going to be back in the system a few weeks. And then I had a combative caseworker like I know better. I've been doing I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm like, just because you've been doing something for 20 years doesn't mean you're good at it. You know what I mean? Out of any profession, it's just like. You know, you're just skating like under the the guise of whatever and not getting fired and just doing just just enough to to not be on the radar for anything. So just like I said, six weeks later, you know, taken for the same thing, neglect. She like left them her him and his sister that's uh nonverbal autistic that eats out of a GI tube by themselves, and he was five, and that's what happened to them when he they was two. So basically out of his whole life, seventy uh, percent of his life, he's been in a foster care system. He was with uh, before he came came to us the first time. He was with an aunt, but the aunt said, "I can't deal with this" because the mom basically came over there and like beat her up, was irate, was like violent and threatening to her, and was, she's like, "I can't, I can't do this." So you know, he ended up in our home the first time he was with us for like a year and like i said like you know advocated for him like this isn't a good idea but like i said foster the voice of foster parents aren't weighed for anything like if you go to court before a child's reunified and tell them like honestly where it's not like emotional because sometimes it's like you're being in a way selfish like you know you you they should be going home but based on the bond you created you don't want them to go um but in this situation, like I knew, like, yeah, I loved him and we wanted him to stay with us. And, you know, if the chance arose to adopt him, but him going back is not the best thing for him. It's the same thing's going to happen that happened. Mm. And unfortunately, like I didn't want to be right, but I was right. Mm. So he's been with us uh, ever since. So situations like that, you know, our, our home, our home is obviously still licensed and stuff like that. Um, so we kind of worry about like the 29 total 29 kids well 20 uh, 28 other kids what if we closed our home and then the kids ended up back in the system we, like we would obviously want them back with us but uh situations like that i don't know how long after if we do get to adopt how long we would you know stay uh, a licensed foster home and uh close the home just based on everything we've we've dealt with um with you know, with the foster care system and just stuff happening during, I mean, this past summer, 
my grandmother passed away. And then within the six weeks of that, my wife's grandfather passed away. So it's just like a lot of life has happened in like the four, four and a half years since we've been foster parents. So uh, realistically, if we adopt, you know, have the other boy in our home, if he gets reunified, he gets reunified. State that if he needs to come back, he can come back. Uh, but potentially maybe take a break and kind of mm. recharge and mm-hmm. re- just re reevaluate because you do get very drained and oftentimes because how you're treated as a foster parent, like your voice isn't valued. Like you're basically told like, you know, you work for like, I've been told you work for us. I'm like, I don't work for anybody. I don't get a paycheck. So like, you need to step back a little bit. I don't work for anyone. Like this is like, I've had so many people say like, I'm combative, but I don't really care. Like, you know what I mean? Like you need to have, like, if you're emotional about something, like, if you hear emotion in somebody's voice, you know somebody cares about something. Right. I'm not saying like being belligerent and getting in somebody's face, getting violent, but like if you're coming to my home and you're doing something or inadvertently not doing something that's causing harm to a child in my home, it's my duty to advocate for that child. Right. So if I get la- like I've had people uh, basically tell people or caseworkers like their situations where the children are allergic to something, they go on a visit and they're parents keep giving it to them so at the point like where it's like they're getting rashes and stuff like that i'm like you're supervising the visit what are you doing and they're like well well and then they come the next time like i'm gonna hold you personally responsible i'm not holding the division i'm gonna sue you personally for negligence and then they get all like you know flustered and then they come because they're like apparently so scary they come with other people i'm like you're bringing other people it's not your bodyguard like you can bring 10 people i'm still gonna say the same thing i don't really care like you're being negligent you're not doing what you're supposed to do you expect me to talk to you super like super nice like hello like i'm not gonna do that i'm not gonna be monotone because you don't listen so maybe like we need to change the way we're doing something because this isn't working so Man, you sound like you're dealing with a, you know, a, so there's the parenting aspect, right, where you just deal with all these things as a parent. You're dealing yeah. with, you know, getting kids into a routine, getting them into bed, trying not to lose your shit if, if things, you know, don't work out as well as what you'd hope. But then you've got all these other dynamics and all these other extra Yeah, that's less that stressful. The parent part, the parent part is the, the least stressful. The dealing with, like, I don't want to be mean and say brain dead people, but usually it's like dealing with zombies that have been so like uh you know deconditioned and so um desensitized because they've been in their roles and saw this and maybe have a negative pessimistic view of like they can't change anything that they don't do anything so it's like i a person of action and i need to get things done and if you're standing in my way we're going to figure out how to solve this or i'm going above you or going around you because mm. you're not you're not delivering what you need to deliver for these kids. They stop being part of the solution, don't they? Yeah, oftentimes. And I'm like, like I said, I don't want to be like one of those people where like every foster, uh, you know, a caseworker in a foster care system is bad. We had some really good ones, but, um, you know, unfortunately we've had a few bad ones as well. Mm. What's some, uh, what's a bit of practical advice you'd give to a parent just on the parenting stuff? Cause you know, a large number of the people that tune into the show or that, we have relationships with it always comes down to the parenting you know once they can get kind of get the kids into a good place it helps them with their mental health it helps them kind of live the life that they're hoping to lead as well what's some practical parenting advice that you'd be happy to share i mean like i mentioned before just being present 
um, having a routine, uh, making the, the, I mean, in my situation, having one-on-one time, because oftentimes there is no time um, for any of that. So <clears throat> encouraging the, the kids to explore like activities or what they're um, interested in and like, don't force them to do something like that. You maybe you always wanted to play a sport. So like you're throwing them into sport and they don't want to do it. That's actually the worst thing you can actually do because I remember so we had this conversation with a musician and I had on my show, um, he, he became a musician. I was like, I played uh, violin, piano, and um, guitar when I was growing up. And I hated it because my mom made me do it. So like my mom, like, oh, like it would be awesome if you played. And it's like, okay. And kind of forced me into it. So don't force the kid into like activities or whatever. Like let them be kids. Like there's yeah. time for that. If they want to do something like, oh, I want to play basketball, football, soccer, whatever. Uh, I want to learn robotics or anything, you, you know, encourage that and facilitate that, you know, help them with it, you know, potentially do it as a hobby, but don't force them to do so in my situation because they have enough to worry about in terms of kind of like what they've experienced and what they're experiencing. And oftentimes they're confused in my situation because they have visits, um, visits with their biological parents and guardians uh, when they're removed, if they reach a certain kind of threshold. So like, let's say, you know, the, the parents were on drugs, like a, you need a clean drug test. So once that's achieved, you have in-office supervised visits, and there's like a like a pyramid of visits. So first, it's usually uh, in-office supervised for like a handful of hours, one two hours. Then you get a privilege of more hours. So in-office uh, supervised with a longer period of time that moves into in-office unsupervised, and then more time, and then at-home supervised more time. Uh, uh, at home unsupervised and then weekend visits when it moves to weekend visits like from experience i've learned usually within that time the kids are getting reunified within like six to eight weeks once it moves into weekend visits mm-hmm. um you know the kids are going to be going home if the plan stays on track and you know the, the parents at that point meet it so like for me personally it's just like you know be there and and identify things i, I think wearing different hats as well so like you're their guardian you're their kind of confidant in their way you're their therapist psychologist so on and so forth you're their counselor you're their caseworker really so wearing those multiple hats and um i you know you know your kids the best as a parent and and look for different things maybe they they're experiencing if if behavior changes you know figure out maybe they need something or they're going through something so you know I would say not forcing them or pressuring them into things that you may want to do or you may want to have done as a child or comparing them. Worst thing is also comparison. I hate that also. Uh, Well, I hated it thinking back. So when my parents say, you know, why aren't you like so-and-so's child? That is like the worst thing you can do. (laughs) So like, don't compare, let them be them. And I think the biggest thing is just being present. Yeah, I love that, man. That is brilliant advice. I wish we had had this conversation about three or four years ago before I forced one of our kids into doing an activity, a sport that they just hated, but I really sucked the fun right out of it. So yes, absolutely. I couldn't uh, couldn't agree with you more. And I love the being present part as well. It's just, I think we have underestimated how important that is. And, you know, in the 
in a day and age where it's all about positions and followers and all the rest, actually just being there is, is just the bee's knees. It's a great place to start off. Um, before I hand back the, the uh, mic just uh, for some final words on how people can reach, I've really enjoyed this conversation, bro. Uh, it has been thought-provoking. Uh, a wee bit saddening as well, if I'm honest, you know, just to hear some of the, the, the system and where it's falling apart. But I also wanted to comment that I found it really uplifting hearing about your journey and the way that you and your wife have been able to navigate through a lot of the system's pitfalls to bring a kind of life that I, I would only imagine a lot of these kids would not have had the opportunity to be exposed to. So thank you so much for your candidness and the honesty, bro. I really appreciate that. I know it means a lot to me that, you know, people can come on and, and share what's, what's going on in their world and, you know, from a very, very real perspective. So I do appreciate that, brother. Um, in terms of how somebody could reach you or your podcast, where might they go? Yeah, me, I mean, I'm on almost every social platform so you know roman prokopchuk i'll show up i mean obviously the last name is a little hard but uh if you kind of type something that sounds like it you'll probably find me um the uh, podcast website is uh, digitalsavageexperience.com awesome awesome and just to help along with that i'll put the, that into the show notes as well i'm looking forward to hearing your podcast man i haven't had a chance to dial into it but i am looking forward to catching up and um, seeing what's going on there Roman, thank you so much again, brother. I really appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to catching up again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Cheers, bro.